You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 5720 Ridge Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. So I want to take you back to 2010. Rod's mom died. She was more mom to me than my own mom in, in any sort of actuality. And we were just returning from her funeral and coming back. Uh, she lived in Arizona at the time of her death, so we had flown out there and came back to my work at the university where I was um, chairing the master's programs in counseling. Uh, so I was over these three master's programs that I'd been building and kind of had a team together and sort of thought things had been going okay. There were some folks within the context of the department who I was trying to encourage to do a little more. Any of you who know me would know that that would be normal for me. Uh, And anyway, came back into the midst of this group and suddenly was really blindsided by uh, a woman in the group two women in the group, but primarily one who I really considered to be a friend. She'd lived in our house with us for a time when she, her family lived quite a ways from the university, so she would come in and stay a couple of days a week with us. So she'd been around the table with my boys, and I was really taken aback that she hadn't come to me and talked to me about whatever was grieving her because clearly she had this whole sort of litany of things that I had done wrong as the chair of this department. And um, I tried to process that. I got my dean involved. Um, Then I got the provost involved. (laughs) So I kept trying to add more people to this conversation to somehow make it safe enough that that she would at least tell me what was going on. I'd been spent months trying to get her to go out to lunch with me, even prior to this, because I'd felt some distance in the relationship. And the, uh, the end result was my dean said she'd never seen an academic department behave so badly before in all of her years. My provost was so upset by what was going on that he back-channeled a sabbatical for me. Um, you're supposed to sign up like two years in advance to get a full year sabbatical. Don't tell anybody about this, okay? Uh, and so he, he got me a sabbatical. And he just said, I just want to get you out of there. And, um, and the end of this long story is that in that sabbatical, I ended up being given a couple of uh, an, a new position altogether, developing doctoral programs that became the joy of my life. Um, uh, just a perfect fit for all the sorts of things that had sort of laced together in, in my heart. So the, the last seven years from that point on of my academic career were wonderful. I just, you know, I just cannot tell you how wonderful they were. But in 2010, to come back to people that I considered my friends, to have them not only treat me poorly, but treat me poorly on the heels of the death of my mother-in-law 
who you guys know me, I, they knew that she was more very, very important to me, and, and they just didn't process any of it with me. These are psychologists. It's like, what is wrong with this picture? But it's also academia, and there's ambition, and there's this, and there's that. And so for me, this became a, a, a real uh, stay up all night and pray, just tug of war with God, trying to sort out what I needed to do, trying to listen to other colleagues, I, I became good friends with one guy just because I knew he would tell it to me straight. And he was the one that said, you really just should resign. So I did uh, from the, my chair position. And that's when the provost stepped in and started. <laughs> they even brought in a mediator. <laughs> this was 2010. And the mediator's final comment to me was, Gwen, why don't you bake some cookies and take them back to the department? And it took me about eight hours to finally sit myself down and say, wait a minute, that is the most sexist remark I have ever heard. She wanted me to go on mothering these people. That was part of my downfall. I had mothered them too much, and I had these bratty children. And uh, and uh, so anyway, but like I say, I think I think God extracted me from one situation, put me in another. It, it's nothing but good. But it did lead me to this long journey of sorting out how do I forgive someone who I still am supposedly colleagues with, although these folks still avoid me to this day. Um, if I past them in the halls, they, they really would not speak to me. And um, at one point, I even asked the, one, the person that was closest to me in all this, I said, um, couldn't we just try to talk about this like Matthew 18? And she said, oh, Gwen, you've been talked to. And I'm like, but wait, I don't know. And still the refusal. Um, I, I really do think there was a lot of psychology buried in all of this. But my topic for tonight, is there anything up there yet? <laughs> oh, it's there. Oh, OK, good. It's, it's about how I, I think the act of forgiving others, whether there's a good apology or no apology at all, whether there is an acknowledgment even, any validation that this experience happened, even if that's not there, we can still forgive, and I would contend that the, this act of forgiving is a deep calling. It's an invitation from God that uh, I recommend to you highly. So I want to explore this sort of um, a, a little different angle on forgiveness with you. I think often we think about forgiving and our focus gets stuck, just like in my retelling of my story. I'm telling you all about what happened then and there. And that's kind of how it gets set up, right? What they did to me. And we get stuck in that hurt, and we get caught in sort of this perpetuating cycle looking backward. If I worked really hard at it, I could probably get upset again about what happened in 2010, right? Um, our minds sort of return to the pain, to the actions that harm us, the bitterness that can grow strong inside of us. But instead of looking backward, 
What I want to try to explore is moving our focus to giving the gift of forgiveness out of our choosing. And this is more complicated because too many of us have done this out of some sort of obligation. We read that Jesus said we had to forgive or God forbid we wouldn't be forgiven, so we do it, right? But I don't think we do. I think we, we don't know very much about this. It takes work, but I believe it is good work and well worth the effort. And by the way, the psychological research about 20 years ago started heating up around the topic of forgiveness, and forgiveness is really good for us. It is, has all kinds of reported health benefits, um, but this angle that I want to work on about be, forgiveness being this sort of disguised invitation from God is where I, I really want to focus. So I want to read you a C.S. Lewis quote that, uh, that I think sets, sets us up for this. Imagine yourself as a living house, like that one. God comes to rebuild that house, sort of needs it. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So I think this is why, ultimately, we're given this invitation to forgive. It's about knocking about our insides in ways that we may never have identified that we needed it. And I think God, even in situations that are unjust, unkind, unrelenting, can still work. And that's why the recommendation comes so strongly, forgive. Well before 2010, I had met, uh, I had met Ev Worthington through the Christian Association for Psychological Studies. Um, it was right when I was coming into my own study of psychology and Christianity that I was introduced to him through CAPS. And CAPS has really become my professional home. Uh, it's a really important organization to me. Rod and I are flying to Dallas uh, on Wednesday to go to the next convention. Um, and at one of these conferences, I first met Ev. He's a voracious researcher, although retired, he's still... Um, researching away. Um, he has retired from his professorship of many years at Virginia Commonwealth University. Ev is one of the foremost researchers uh, and probably published more than anyone else in the field of forgiveness. Um, but he came to this study in a very personal way. His elderly mother in 1996 was sexually violated and brutally murdered. Five years later, Ev's brother, who had found their mother's body, hung himself, uh, a direct result of some of these traumatic events. And Ev has had to work at forgiving his mother's murderer and at forgiving himself for
for not being able to help his brother. As a psychologist, <laughs> we're supposed to be able to do something about this, right? And so I think Ev's work on forgiveness is, is really magnificent stuff. So I want to work with, with that tonight, just present his model to you as a way to work at this and a way to really receive more deeply this invitation from God. So let me read a kind of long quote from Ev, and then um, I want to go into sort of his model of how forgiveness happens. One of the things that I think is pretty clear in the scripture is we are asked to forgive, right? We're told pretty clearly, do this. Doesn't really tell us how. And so Ev's tried to fill in um, with that. So here's, here's the quote. Wounds are part of life, just like dying is part of life. Yet it is anxiety producing to dwell on those certainties, so we often create an irrational belief that protects us against facing the negative. We hope that our irrational belief will give us hope. It seems on the surface that it should, but to the contrary, it undermines hope. Here's the irrational belief. I have a right to experience a life free of pain and suffering and filled with joy. We claim that right because, first, we try to live justly. We try to live righteously, treating others, at least most of the time, with respect. Two, we're especially strong or skilled or bright or good, whatever we might fill in the blank there. Three, we're Christians and God loves us and has a plan for our lives. And there's this disconnect then between these beliefs these irrational beliefs, which power our lives daily right under the surface, but are very disconnected from any rational analysis that might come from the actual conditions of our lives. And when we hold these beliefs and live as if they were true, we expect no pain, no suffering, no unfair treatment, and in general, a just world. However, our just world usually overlooks any of our own hurtful behaviors. Our expectations are thus often violated, and so we look for someone to blame. I certainly went through that process with my colleagues. What I want to suggest, though, for tonight, for your, your week maybe as you think back on this, is that this is the old cottage and God's invitation might feel like a huge leap, leap or even a crushing obligation. Uh, things get really messy when we're hurt and when we are confronted with what often feels like God's demand that we forgive. So let's work with this. Real quickly, concepts that you've heard me talk about a whole lot. We just live consciously and unconsciously, right? I, I, I'm hoping you can handle that as an agreement now. The brain scientists have overwhelmed us with information and they're continuing to. Uh, the world of neuroscience is just active every day with more research pouring in. We understand some things about ourselves. We're conscious about who we are and what we do in the world. And there's a lot happening in our brains that is unconscious, that we're not aware of. Um, and I think some of you have probably heard me talk a bit about how I think from a theological perspective that makes a whole lot of sense, that, that sin has not only cut through the world, it's also cut right through the way our brains work. 
so that we are fragmented from our very selves. We don't know ourselves very well. And the scriptures certainly pointed that out, too. So we know some things about what might make us mad or sad or act in bad ways or good ways, but we don't know a lot of other things about how those things might be getting motivated within us. And I think that becomes particularly clear when we've been hurt and there's this need to forgive. Uh, it could be a window. That's my invitation, right? To see more deeply, to let Jesus have more of these, the depths of us. So let's go after some of these famous passages from Matthew. Jesus is teaching about forgiving and his friend Peter is listening to this, this um, sermon of Jesus's, and um, it's actually just after, um, well, I'm not going to keep, keep me moving here. So Peter poses a question. He pushes his mind to the very limits, and he says what would be the most unimaginable. I'm going to please Jesus. I'm going to say, should I forgive seven times? If somebody comes and hurts me seven times over, is that that's it, right? I'll, I'll forgive them seven times. Isn't that being good? And of course, we remember Jesus's really mind-boggling reply, no, 70 times seven. 490 times. That must have felt like his living house was getting stretched beyond any limit to Peter. I think it's just shy of the number I needed to forgive my colleagues. I needed it over and over and over again. At first glance, this feels extreme. I might even say it feels abusive, doesn't it? If I'm going to stay with somebody that would hurt me in maybe even the same ways, 490 times. Sidebar, if you are in an abusive relationship, you will need help to get out of that. Talk to me later. Talk to Julie. Talk to a cell leader. We want to help you. I'm not talking about situations of abuse. My colleagues, you might be able to say we're abusing me. I think that would be accurate. But it wasn't a close relationship where I was in danger over and over and over again, physical danger or even emotional danger, although Certainly, they wreak some havoc upon my emotional life. Um, so in cases of abuse, we need to do some different things. So if you're not sure, talk to somebody. But in this case, with my colleagues, and what I would recommend to you for many of the situations in your life, once again, Jesus is just taking reality and sort of cracking it open and opening it up in a much more deep way. I think we human beings need 490 times because that's just the way we are. I could not get to the end of all my emotion unless I was there 490 times. It would just keep popping up. I'd forgive, and I'd sail along for a week, and then I'd see somebody across campus, and there it was again, right? Or I got through 10 minutes, and there it was again. I needed to keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. I think that is just the cycle of being a human being. So now to Ev's research. Um, the Bible calls us to forgive, but doesn't say a lot about how to do it. So Ev started talking to people and trying to understand how we do this. And so you start there. I, I took Ev's, Ev's five steps 
And I put them in this wheel because it made much more sense to me when I looked at that Matthew 18 process that we were going to go round and round and round, right? So this would be the place to start. And it's the place where I would place the most emphasis. And I think it's the place where we, as people who try to follow Jesus and try to do these commands, right, we get all flummoxed and we move through this recalling the hurt phase way too quickly. It is really important to be able to identify how you have been hurt and that you have been hurt before you can expect yourself to move through the steps of forgiving. Uh, in our culture, we often think also of the kind of individual act of forgiving. We think of it as a very interpersonal endeavor that I'm going to forgive you for something. And that, that certainly is true at one level. But I think as Circle of Hope, uh, a people who are trying to be together, it's helpful to remember that your gift of forgiving someone benefits the whole, benefits all of us. That uh, the reality is that we all live in a community and that relationships are impacted across the body in these kind of ripple effects. So, recalling the hurt. I think the first part of this invitation, or maybe it's the, the first part of the knocking about of the old cottage, the, the rehab always begins with the demo day, right? And so you've got to knock into some things. And often these hurts, if we can own them as our own and understand them more deeply, help us to know much more about what we want in the world, much more about where we are lacking and the kinds of things that really trouble us. And you cannot know this without the hard work of reflection and some of the contemplative prayer practices that are being offered in Lent. I spent a lot of time in the silence in 2010, and I'm not sorry for any of it. I think it saved my life, right? It, it was not always that I could pop up and know I'd heard a word from the Lord just doesn't happen that way. But it was absolutely true that slowly the whispers of God's love coming through again and again were the starting place for me learning more deeply and more wholly how to forgive. And you know where it started? It started with my deeper sense of being forgiven by God. I can forgive because I have already been forgiven as have you. We, we have this unique place in our world <laughs> as Christians because this is the baseline for us, that we are the forgiven. We are the ones who have had our wrong marked off, set free. We need to know this to forgive. Um, the next step, and I think you'll know right away, I'm not sure why my slide kind of empathies -y. but um, this is hard in order to get to the place of the, in the research there's some terms uh, there's the, there's state forgiveness that's sort of like st 
R-A-I-T state, um, S-T state, S, yeah, anyway. It's like it's a characterological part of who you are. I think that comes through this kind of deeper prayer. But there's also the felt forgiveness. And this is where we all really want to get. We don't want to have to feel the hurt anymore. We don't want to have to feel the anger anymore. We don't want to have to feel this awkwardness. We want to just have it all go away, right? Have you gotten there before in your own sense of things? And so this process of being able to name that which we feel we have lost or what has been impacted, the ways we've been hurt, can lead then very naturally in trying to identify what was going on for the other person, what led to the bad behavior in them. Not so that we can tell them about it, but so that we can understand, so that we can empathize. Took me a long time to begin to remember all the things I knew about my friend, about her really difficult childhood, about having open heart surgery at a very young age, about having a father who was really emotionally difficult to deal with, all the kinds of things that made her a very, very anxious person. Just so happens in my life, I grew up with a very anxious mother. So I don't recognize anxiety in other people very well. It, it took other people helping me to see that she was anxious and that caused some of her, what I think could only be called an attack on me and her withdrawal from me, her refusal to talk to me honestly. It was about her anxiety. And I tend to blame myself for those things. It's sort of the house I grew up in. Some of these walls needed to be knocked down. And so we try to figure out what might have been going on for that other person. How can I empathize with what they did? And then you just have to give the gift. You just have to say, and sometimes I think this comes because you're sick of working with it. At least that's my, that was my story. I am just tired of this. I don't want to feel this stuff. I just, I, I have to forgive. I just have to forgive her. And I have to give the gift. And it's just like that. I give it. And then I just commit myself and hold on for the 490 more times this is going to reoccur in my mind and heart because the last step is sort of a repeat of four. Four and five just run into each other, right? I'm committed to forgiving. I'm even believing that God is the one who gives me the power to forgive. And then I hold on. And round and round I go. This is, I think, the fundamental, it's baseline Christianity. This is what we do. We forgive. We forgive our enemies. We forgive ourselves when we fail, as Ev learned. We forgive because we've been forgiven. It is a path to freedom. Jesus offers us the way. I recommend it highly. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.